0: Hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I'm Justin Phillips.
1: And I'm Saleho. Today, we're talking to Michelle Zauner, who you might know better as Japanese Breakfast. She's a super talented musician and writer whose new book, Crying in H Mart, came out on April 20th. And it's about grief. It's about her mother. It's about the way she uses food to remember her mom, who was her only sort of Direct link to Korean culture. When I first read her book in preparation for the interview, like I understood what she meant, right? And as far as caretaking, as far as sort of shepherding her mother through cancer. But you know, I'm speaking to you from the Chronicles Rockford, Illinois desk, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, because I'm going through something similar. Not my mother, but my grandfather, and you know, we're just trying to figure things out day by day. But certainly, the thing that we do a lot is eat, and I understood on a visceral level, just what sent Michelle to restaurants, what made her sort of drown herself in the abundance of Korean cuisine. I'm just glad that I read her book before this, and so I can kind of see what's happening in a different light, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. For your listening pleasure, here is my conversation with Michelle. So before we get too far along, can you just describe the book to our listeners and just talk about what led you to writing it, just to give a little bit of context?
0: Sure. Um, so I'm actually half Korean. My mom was Korean and my father is Caucasian. And when I was 25, um, we discovered that she had a very aggressive stage four cancer it was a rare type of squamous cell carcinoma that originated they think in the bile duct but two years before that um her younger sister my aunt Unmi, also passed away of colon cancer so there's a ton of gi cancer in my family and so i moved um back to eugene oregon to sort of be there for her as a caretaker um, for six months and you know my mom and I like a lot of I think immigrant parents and children who were raised in the U.S. like you know had a lot of trouble growing up I mean I was definitely like a creative person and very much like an independent young woman and so we butted heads a lot and during this time that I, I moved back in you know we really were able to like come back together in in this very meaningful and deep way but one thing that was really hard was, uh, figuring out how to feed her because, you know, when you're going through chemotherapy, uh, food, there are very few foods that you can eat or enjoy eating. Everything kind of tastes metallic or makes you nauseous. And on top of all of that, my mom was a Korean woman. And so I, I didn't, you know, I was really familiar and had like a really rich, like, uh, life of food growing up like I my mom always made an American meal and like a, a Korean meal and I always got to like you know benefit from eating both foods off the table and uh but I wasn't used to like the kind of foods that you would prepare for like a sick person that was Korean um so I just encountered a lot of failure and I think I felt a lot of shame as a caretaker and um after there was a woman who came who lived to live with us for a little bit, a Korean woman who, who really helped like make some dishes, but also kind of like barred me from the kitchen uh, in a way. I think that that's like a pretty common thing in a lot of like unintentionally like in a lot of Asian cultures where like that kind of knowledge is not like very re- like openly passed down to strangers. Um, so yeah, after my, my mother passed away, I found myself really gravitating towards cooking Korean food and and sort of like a lot of these really beautiful memories I had of my childhood kind of started rushing back to me during this process. And so I wrote this book largely about grief and sort of like using Korean cooking as a way to connect with my mother's um, memory and also my Korean heritage.
1: I don't know. It it was so interesting to me that you had, you know, your your first album as Japanese Breakfast as your... as part of that band um and that project was about essentially like the story of you and your mother as well um and what was it like to go over it
0: i guess i mean practically speaking for a second time just in a different format i'm about to come out with my third album in june but the two records before that which were called psychopomp and soft sounds from another planet were written like within the like two years of my mother's passing and are Mm -hmm. largely about, like, what I was feeling. So I would say psychopomp was, like, this really raw, vulnerable recount of, like, what had happened. And then soft sounds was almost, like, the aftermath of, like, you know, the ways that we kind of, like, disassociate to get on with living after you uh, endure, like, that, you know, heavy of a loss. And even after that, like, I just there was just so much that happened and there was so much to like sort through um, you know, what had happened in this very intense period of time. And I think there was also this excitement of like, I would love to just like spend some time reliving what was good, you know? Um, And really like I wanted people to like really know her and I wanted to like investigate her in a new way. And, um, yeah, No. So, just like figure out why, why did I do this thing? I mean, the first line of the book is like, ever since my mom died, I cry in H Mart. And really the whole book is why, why do I do that? Why, <laughs> mm-hmm. what, what led me to this, to this experience? And why do I keep going to this grocery store all the time? <laughs> um, and like, why is it so emotional for me? And so I just, I feel like there, it was a lot of just exploring like the different, uh, lanes of what led me to, be this person that cries in this Korean grocery store.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like food too is is such a a constant source of catharsis, you know, in in many different fashions in the book and seemingly in your life as well. Um, and I thought that I don't know, just there's something about the the struggle, right, to figure out how to even make it that was so evocative too um Mm. and just your descriptions of the food was so interesting um did you do any sort of like i don't know because like you you have the just the the patterns of writing the chops of a food writer like a seasoned one too oh thank you (laughs) (laughs) yeah are you like a, a reader of food writing like is there i guess what did you pull from as inspiration for this?
0: Sure, yeah. Um, I definitely, I don't recall reading that much food memoir. Uh, obviously, I I did read a lot of food memoir um, to kind of prepare for this book and see how people do it. Um, I really love M.F.K. Fisher's food writing. The gastronomical me is just like such a, it's like totally different types of food, but it's like, I think that the way that she writes about food is just so charming. I love, um, Anthony Bourdain's A Cook's Tour, uh, particularly a short story about um, visiting like this French coastal town that like reminds him of his father, and like the whole book is about, you know, finding the perfect meal, and um, I just really, really love his food writing. like everyone. (laughs) Um, I read Ruth Reichel's Tender at the Bone and loved it. Um, What else? I read Eddie Wong's memoir. you know, I, I tried to just, like, read as much food memoir as I could. And, and um, you know, even in great a lot of great books, there's, like, you know, an occasional passage about food that just, like... I, I find writing about food pretty pretty easy, I think. I mean, it's just, like, such a sensory... You know, it's all senses. And, I, and everyone, like... It's just, like, really feels easy for me to write about. But I, it's not like I write about it all the time, so... <laughs> <laughs> I love um, also Chang Ray Lee Li has like wonderful food writing. I, I, I found that much later, but um, uh, he has a really great piece in the New Yorker about like a very similar, like eerily similar topic to me. And uh, also Han, this is like, this is like scary eating, but like the vegetarian by mm-hmm. Han Kang is also an incredible book. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think your sort of latter references too really pull in the, the different ways that we can use, food as a sort of motif and to talk about these deeper freakier things almost um yeah because like you know it it is quite easy to just talk about how delicious food is honestly Mm -hmm. right um but it is when it gets sort of disturbing or hard or like not appetizing and i think you have a few scenes like that in your book as well yeah that's the challenge i think
0: yeah um i mean those sections were definitely hard to write but i feel like you know i was investigating this portion of my life like and, and, you know, I knew that food was going to be this like major vehicle. So, you know, it really uncovered to me like, well, why was like at one point in the book, like food gets really bad. It gets bad in the sense of like calorie counting and making sure that like someone's eating enough calories, which was like a huge fear of mine was like watching my mother become emaciated and like obsessively counting calories and also like losing a lot of weight uh in the process of doing that both of us um and also just the struggle to enjoy food like you know when she went through chemotherapy like her mouth got like taken over with sores and like you know she was throwing up all the time so I think that a big reason was like the joy of food in my childhood that was like so rich and wonderful and full of love went through this very like grotesque transformation for a period of time and then kind of like Reclaiming that after it was over, I think was a big part of my healing process, but it was really important to me that like uh, You kind of saw When food gets ugly and why it was important to kind of restore that Mm -hmm. Yeah, no,
1: I think that's That's something you don't read too much, especially in most sort of mainstream food writing Um, and it's an important part of this, too. And I think we're seeing more of it, too, as as more and more people write about, for instance, losing their sense of taste after getting uh, the coronavirus mm-hmm.
0: yeah. and how
1: food takes on this sort of grotesque um, reminder of, of their condition because of that. Um, now, I think that's really novel about this as well and you know it's not like no one has ever done it before but i think it is really interesting like you say the juxtaposition between the sort of rich descriptions of the food you ate as a child um and then just sort of how they're recast you know because of disease and Mm. the environment that you were in it was really intense Mm.
0: thank thank you (laughs) (laughs) sorry i'm just like
1: talking about the book but i think like another part of this that (laughs) That I found really interesting, and I'd love to hear more about this, is just the healing process that you allude to as well. Because there's a part in the book, for instance, where you you seek out therapy and then you sort of give up because it's too expensive and kind of pointless Um at least in that, you know, in those attempts, and you just end up making kimchi as your therapy. Do you still do that?
0: Occasionally, like, if I have the time. I mean, it, I, I do really enjoy it. Um, I think especially, like, we were talking about earlier, like, I have, like, a very busy mind, and I'm always, like, very, like, I don't know, like, managing a lot of different little things, and I think that it's one of those, like, activities that, like, it's kind of like baking. I mean, it takes, like, a long time, Uh. It takes at least like 2 hours or 3 hours, you know, to set up and then it ages, but um just like the act of it, it's like very tactile and like uh like the smells and the you know, feeling and uh it's it's just really soothing to me.
1: There's a really interesting contrast two between this and just sort of your kind of early feelings about your mom who was, you know, a housewife homemaker. Can you talk about how you sort of came around to it or like figured out your feelings on that? Just, I don't know, because I think often we, we tend to overcompensate <laughs> too. And when we apply sort of feminism to our own life experiences, which is very much kind of the 101, right, of when we first learned about that stuff, it's, I don't know, we ask a lot of tough questions that are really hard to answer at the time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that I came around to it, I guess, like, just naturally getting older and, like, being less stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Like, a big part of it was, like, you know, going to college and, like, having to provide for myself for the first time and, like, you know, all the things that my mother warned me I was, like, taking for granted. I realized (laughs) I was taking for granted, you know, Uh like... You know, they're just some, I mean, there's so much work that goes into like caring for a house, you know, and it's very easy to write it off as like, you know, errand work, but it is a lot of work. I mean, and I think that we're like starting to kind of deconstruct like what that, you know, invisible labor is worth. um, And and that a lot of women are doing this unpaid labor and, and being treated as if it's uh not labor at all or or somehow less important but you know without these people doing these things like I I mean our lives would be much worse and also we wouldn't be able to you know do other types of work so I I think it was just one of the more heartbreaking things for me was like uh, my mother and I really began to like return to each other in my early 20s in a way that I think a lot of people kind of return to their parents after like you know being rotten teenagers maybe but um, I think I just, I was able to really appreciate all the things that my mother did for me once I wasn't, was no longer in the house. And I think I re- realized like how simple and, and, um, you know, in my mind it was just like, I, my idea of what feminism was, was pretty limited when I was a teenager, but it was very, you know, strong. <laughs> and I think I just, uh, you know, I didn't like take into account like my mom's like cultural background and, you know, um. All the things that she did for us that that I just wrote off as as uh, unimportant, I guess.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's also a really interesting part of the creative life and the creative world as well. And I'm sure you've ex- encountered a lot of this, too, as a musician. But I think artists, especially male artists, you know, they they create a lot of great things because there's someone supporting them. There's someone who's washing the dishes and taking care mm-hmm. of the kids um mm, And it's a pardon. part of, yeah, it's a huge part of creating that people don't really talk about. And I think that when you wrote about that in the book, it felt very much like that of how how easily that mindset kind of infects <laughs> like creatives as well, of just like, oh, yeah, I don't mm-hmm. need to do any of this pedestrian stuff. I just need to create right. right? And then right, right. hopefully you come around and you realize like actually, that labor is really important, too,
0: totally totally i mean i definitely yeah i mean i definitely do that i'm an artist and i i definitely like (laughs) expect my husband to take care of a lot of stuff and it's like more more on my you know and it's hard to because like i always am like oh my god like i'm i have like taken over your time in this way that i think that i have a lot more anxiety over like being a woman in a relationship with a man like Mm -hmm. uh that he's he he like picks up this so much extra labor to like help us and like I, I have a lot of paranoia that like I'm not helping him enough with like his his ambitions and uh because I'm like so focused on mine and like a lot of things get fall to the wayside and and he takes care of them uh, um but yeah I feel like that that might be you know like traditionally not a thought that that many creatives have so I would like to think that I am better because I <laughs> think about it <laughs> You're thinking about it at least, yeah, 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 yeah. At least I say <laughs> thank you a, a lot and apologize a lot. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast.
1: We'll be right back after a quick break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com/pod. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We're back with Michelle Zoner. So. I also wanted to talk a little bit about just Mangsi and her sort of, she seems kind of deified in your book um, as the Korean food blogger who is just sort of the the substitute mother for so many people on the Internet. Mm. Mm-hmm. Have you actually gotten a chance to talk with her? Yeah. Yes. What is she like in real life?
0: Oh, she's like maybe one of the most like effervescent magnetic people I've ever met uh she's like a true celebrity I think um I met her a couple times I went to like a Q&A you know like she w- I mean I, I think it's just really amazing like how the internet can like bring these people into your life and you've never met them and they can just mean so much and I, I actually you know this book really started as an essay that was a real ode to her and, and how much she really helped me during a very hard time and uh I brought her the essay to this like mm. Q and A that she did. Um, I forget where it was, but it was with Huni Kim, who like runs a couple of Korean restaurants in Manhattan. And I, I gave her the essay, and she was so sweet, and she signed my cookbook. And Ugh. when the I forgot that I put like my contact information because I had been like pitching this essay in a number of places, and then it won Glamour Magazine's Essay of the Year in 2016. And when it came out, she saw it, and she actually called me and was like. I feel like your mom, Like, <laughs> I'm like so proud of you and like, you know, keep in touch or whatever. And I was just like, I didn't, I was like, how did she get this number? And then I remembered I put it on the essay that I gave her. <laughs> uh, and then I, I hit her up like a, a couple of years ago to be on this Munchies show that I was hosting and, and we talked about Korean food and uh, it was the day before my 30th birthday, which was actually, uh, so yesterday was my birthday. So this was, like, two years ago as of yesterday. And um, she was like, oh, come to my house. I'll cook you dinner. Oh, god! So for my 30th birthday, like, uh, my husband and I went to her apartment for dinner. And she, like, made us, like, I I got to, like, try her kimchi. And, like, uh, she made us, like, bulgogi. And, like, we, you know, got me a little uh, peri baguette cake and, like, uh, (laughs) some soju. And it was, like, so sweet. And it just, like, blew my mind. Because I think that she... Uh, she, like, refers to them as her, her readers, and uh, she just is used to it, you know? And she, like, is really appreciative of it and is very generous to, like, these people who... I think, weirdly, like, so many people, like, from, you know, other people who have, like, lost a Korean parent or, like, Korean adoptees or, like, you know, like, people with Korean spouses or, uh, you know, just so many different stories like have like they've come to her and it's like very personal and like she has this experience a lot and she's actually really really generous and great at navigating these <laughs> people like me who are just you know obsessed with it <laughs> <laughs> no it's a lot of work right I'm, I'm sure she takes I on would a not lot be of as generous as, as she has been I'm not as generous I wish I could be but I I mean she's is she is really does go above and beyond and is one of one of the most amazing people I met
1: oh wow I mean how do you because your projects have been so personal and this book reveals a lot as well how do you handle it when people come to you and want to talk to you about your mom or or their own sort of emotional burdens
0: uh I try to listen and not like beat myself up over how poorly I do (laughs) you know like Uh I, I mean it's just hard like even if you've gone through something like what do you say you know like uh I try I mean, it really breaks my heart. I have a lot of kids, like, come up to me who are much younger than me when they lost their parents. And, uh, you know, it's an incredible thing to be connected by. And, and um, yeah, but it's it's hard to know what to say. I mean, I'm I'm happy that people have found some comfort or, like, felt less alone through my work. But, you know, and they want to share it. And it's hard to know what to say. Uh, but I'm trying to get better at <laughs> it yeah, I'm sure it's I don't know. I think
1: I've I've gone through similar sort of interactions with people who read my work and and I'm always beating myself up in my head over um just what I perceive to be canned responses or like not genuine right, enough. Right. And yeah, I mean that's sort of the the trade off, right? When you when you kind of make a life out of vulnerability and being honest about yourself is that oh now people are going to be looking at me
0: (laughs) right i mean you spent you spent all this time like writing the thing and then like what's there to say about it afterwards? you know like uh i i uh i always feel like i'm letting people down but i i don't know i think that that's really normal i don't think that there is like a a non-can thing or like uh a perfect thing to say every every time um and I, I don't think ultimately anyone is, like, looking for anything in particular or, or is going to be satisfied with anything that you say. But um, mm-hmm. I think the best thing to do is, is to to listen and, and, you know, be receptive to it, I guess.
1: Yeah. No, it seems like people just want to unburden, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. I find that writing about food is very similar to talking about grief um, or, like, these sort of major human things that everyone goes through. You know, it's just There are the pat things that you say, like that was delicious or I am sad. Mm, And then the challenge when you are a writer or, you know, trying to make something new out of something so universal is how do you say things in a different way that is honest Mm. but also not pat? And, you know, not trite and not the same thing.
0: Yeah. Or sometimes sometimes like writing like really simply is uh, is also can be really effective, you know, and in the same way that I guess like very simple actions can be very um, comforting. Yeah. In, in grief. I mean, like,
1: I would love to hear about how you resolved that sort of difficulty, um, you know, because you end the book sort of on a... a f- a sort of upbeat i think um and mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you end a story i mean you're like that like how did you decide on that resolution
0: uh it wasn't always like that i i was like really hesitant for a long time to write about my relationship to music for a really long time because i really felt like it would confuse the theme like I-, I didn't know if there was really room to like mention my work as an artist as a musician and and my love of music um while also having this book where the major theme is food but i mean it's not like i went on to become a chef or anything or or i'm, I'm even interested in doing that but um i i submitted the first draft uh with the second to last chapter as the end mm. um and and so it wasn't always like that some a lot of like what happens in the last chapter was like sort of happening in real time as i was writing it uh. And, you know, I, I just realized, like, my my relationship with my aunt uh, became, like, so rich. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, I just, I find that story, the, how it ends, I, I find it to be very, very charming. And and, and I, I think I, like, really came to terms with, like, even though this isn't a book about music or, like, how I became a musician by any means. And I was never interested in writing that book or, or am I interested in writing that book. <laughs> but, um, you know, as a young creative like that was a major point of contention between my, my immigrant mother and I it was like not a lifestyle mm-hmm. that she um was thrilled that I was interested in pursuing and it's you know it was a very serendipitous thing that I ended up becoming a professional musician in the wake of her loss and it almost felt like she was really looking out for me in a, in a way even though I'm not a particularly spiritual person it was impossible to not look at like I'd been struggling to become a musician for 10 years and only after I wrote this record about my mom passing away did I become successful and and um yeah I mean it was just a a really haunting thing and I and I think so much of the book is like so much of what my mom was trying to protect me from was like the way that she also was and um there were all these like kind of things that I was sort of uncovering about her uh through these other people in her life and um yeah I don't know I guess like I, I it it took just like writing it out to feel like it you know it was a, a good ending because I could never like write a book that was just like and then I cooked Korean food and I got over her death you know what I mean <laughs> like it's, I, I, grief is this thing that you live with forever so it it can't really end you don't want it to end well but you don't want it to end awfully either and and it, it felt very much like that was the right place or it was like I don't I don't feel like you get the sense that either of those things is really happening at the end of the book but it feels complete somehow and it feels like there's this like poetic silence that takes over or something uh that that felt good to me I think a lot of the way that it ends too like was something that I learned from like that piece in the New Yorker which is the you know the first essay in in the book or the first chapter of the book was published as a standalone essay called "Crying in H Mart" in the New Yorker, and, and it used to be that, that that essay ended with and ever since then I cry in H Mart, so it ended with like the same <laughs> same sentiment as the. First. It was horrible, and the only <laughs> edit I got from the New Yorker actually, which I was so surprised because I thought that they were really going to rip me apart. I got one edit and it was just like, we should, um, we should change the this horrible ending, <laughs> and uh, I just deleted the sentence and ended it with this image of. My, my family like eating grapes. <laughs> and I think that that was a, a, a big lesson for me is that you can just like end in a moment and people can infuse what they want out of this like uh ordinary kind of moment and it can be really beautiful. Mm, right, you can just stop short. Yeah, yeah, that's what I learned is just stop short.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that, that impulse, right, to like tie everything up is, yeah, yeah. it's so strong and like, you know, so many of the stories that we love end it that way but yeah when you do a certain kind of writing it's it's less is more <laughs> yeah <laughs> the chapter about vietnam i found really interesting uh also just because it stuck out so much to me mm-hmm. it felt very much like a standalone I and mean, mm-hmm. it could have been a standalone essay um in mm-hmm. the sort of like cook's tour bourdain style of like going somewhere right and like checking out all the food and having these like really really strong sort of emotional experiences. But in that essay, there's this moment where your dad calls you guys foodies <laughs> <laughs> to a waitress in Hoi An, I think. Or no, where is it? Hue. Um, Hue, yeah. And you just cringe. So have you been called a foodie since then? How do you feel about it? Uh, let's talk about it. And I want to process that with you.
0: I mean, I, I guess there's not anything too wrong with it, but it's it's like it's like calling yourself a hipster. You know what I mean? It's like I know I probably like am a hipster, but <laughs> I would never say that I'm. You know, mm. you like cease to be one if you like call yourself. I don't know. It's just like it's gross to like call yourself one, or like hear other people call you one, even if you like have the traits of one. I guess I think that like there are probably a ton of people who I really like that probably refer to themselves as foodies and you know i don't mind being associated with them but then there's a, another pool of people who also call themselves foodies that are really annoying and i don't want to be associated with. <laughs> kind
1: of like hipsters yeah i guess so yeah yeah no that's a really apt
0: comparison i guess it's like so in that moment my dad says like oh we're foodies but then he like he doesn't know really anything about food he just likes to eat food <laughs> <Do> you <laughs> know like it's not the same uh it's weird well how do you feel about it you're you're super pro foodie <laughs> i am actually i don't think so yeah i think i'm
1: anti-foodie
0: you're anti-foodie
1: i think generally speaking th- any sort of identity that you derive from right. what you like purchase right, right. is like mm-hmm. fraught i don't know i just i'm just i'm not really a capitalist i don't really love that stuff even though i love harvest moon <laughs> and i love making as much money as possible <laughs> off my turnips like i'm not a, i don't love the the materialist I think foodie there's, yeah
0: there's there's this culture of like i have to have like the greatest gadgets and like uh try all of the new restaurants uh that like have michelin stars and you know like there's this like hunting element of like foodie nature that like is really unappealing to me you know like i love to learn about food i love to learn about other cultures and like read about people's like family stories about like their relationship to food or like you know like share like photos of the food that they've even like of the food that they've made but like there is this other like kind of like Seedy underbelly of the foodie world, where I feel like they're at least like you know, just like yuppies, like hunting to go. I'm I'm I apologize if this is your <laughs> fan base at all, but uh, um, you know, there's there's something like th- the tallying aspect of like, oh, have you heard of this new restaurant that's like been in this paper, and like we have to go like try it, mm-hmm. and like um, it's just like overwhelming to me, and 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 very unappealing in this way that I I, I like the more like homey nature of of relationships to food I guess.
1: Well, no, I mean, I get that, especially like you as a Korean in the United States can probably
0: pick up very easily on how Korean food has been commodified. Right. And and. Right. So here's a perfect example of that is like I remember seeing I was like at the Korean spa like many years ago and I remember like reading a magazine that was like korean food is out vietnamese food is like in or so like or, or filipino food is in or something like that and then that's when it becomes troubling like that kind of foodie culture of like what's the new hot thing that is not how i am interested in having relationship with with food it's like a series of uh trends and whatnot yeah i didn't know we were in a fight yeah i thought i mean it's great that we're more people are getting exposed to both of those cuisines and why isn't there room for all of them? I mean, there's plenty of new American restaurants in the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: but I want to let you go because I know this was a lot and I am so grateful for your
0: time. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was so wonderful to to share the joys of uh, food and, and farming simulation <laughs> games with you.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I am so glad to, to connect with another Harvest Moon fan. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, if you don't mind, would you tell the listeners where they can find you and your work if they want to know more?
0: Uh, Crying in H Mart comes out on April twentieth. Um, it should be in, in bookstores all over. You can Google it and find it, and, and hopefully order it soon. Um, and yeah, my handle is Jay Brecky on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find out more about me on there and, and my project Japanese Breakfast, and, and listen to my albums on Spotify. <laughs> awesome, thank you, Michelle. Awesome, thank you so much for having me.
1: That's all we have for today. Thank you to Taya Francesca Price for producing and editing this episode. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. And no, this podcast is not available as a non-fungible token.
0: I'm glad you pointed that out. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening.